Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who Show presents Doctor Who Books Part 1. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And this is the first of a little mini-series of Doctor Who Show Presents podcasts that we're going to be doing, Rob. It is. I, I love when we go off on these little detours, Dave. It's good fun. Yeah, so what we've decided is Rob and I are both you know, real fans of the Doctor Who novelizations and the Doctor Who books that came out. Uh, and we wanted to talk about them, but I'm a real fan of the Virgin books, but didn't really have a lot of experience of the BBC books, whereas you, Rob? Yes, me. I um, I had a really bad reaction to the new adventures uh, when they first came out, Dave, because it was around 91 they came out. We're getting into the episode already, aren't we? It was about <laughs> 91 they came out, yeah? Yeah, that's right. It was, yeah, and I... How old was I in 91? I was 16. So I'd had my childhood with Doctor Who. Doctor Who had ended. had been gone for two years. I was 16 years old. I was interested in girls and getting my license and that sort of stuff. And then it was like, oh, really? You've brought out books? Oh, that's lame. Doctor Who isn't books. You know, forgetting, of course, that I read all those Target novels. But uh, put, that, <laughs> put that aside. Uh, Doctor Who. New Doctor Who isn't books. Ah, yuck. Terrible. I, I don't want to be... I don't want anything to do with this. And I, I just pushed it out of my head. I didn't want to know. Yeah, so what we're going to do is, for this episode, I'm going to basically take Rob, and hopefully through him, you as well, listeners, through a bit of a tour of the Virgin books. And we'll be back later with a part two, where, Rob, you'll take me through the BBC books. That's right, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, Dave. And, and I should jump in at, at this point and say, I've come to uh, have different feelings about the NAs now. I actually own an entire set of NAs. Yes, even the extraordinarily expensive ones. We <laughs> maybe talk about that a bit later too. Well, we um, you know, I've not read many uh, of them at all. It's a project for the future, but my whole attitude towards them has changed and I've now read enough about them and through conversations like we're about to have, I, I can appreciate them for what they are now. So certainly my the attitudes of a snotty 16-year-old don't, don't still apply. So don't, don't worry, folks, I'm not going to be like that for the rest of this episode. Yeah, but I suppose the final point to make is this is one of those topics that we see as being very niche. So we want to really dive deep into it, but it's not really ideally suited, we think, for a flagship monthly episode so that's why it's coming out as a special no that's right so if you haven't heard our monthly episode for this past month on queer who do look that up on the feed absolutely so let's kick in okay let's do it so as you intimated rob let's just start with the, the history for those who aren't familiar with these books as we were growing up and as many many fans of the classic series were growing up obviously the books were coming out as novelizations so all the televised stories were being novelized plus a few other things like a couple of radio dramas like the pescaton's got a novel mm. slipback got a novel um there were a couple of original novels the companion chronicles ian marta did one and there was one about turlo but for the most part they were novelizations of the stories that's right. Towards the end, they were really scrambling to, to publish anything they could because they'd run out of TV episodes, aside from some Dalek stories and I think Douglas Adams stories that they couldn't do at the time. That's right. And so obviously in 1989, they stopped making Doctor Who. So there are no new stories. And within a year, the target company is pretty much caught up. And in the novelization of Survival, which comes out late in 1990 by Rona Munro, there is actually a postscript, and I'm looking at it now, by Peter Darville Evans, the editor of W.H. Allen's Doctor Who books. Mm. And he has a little sort of two-page screed, if you like, saying, uh, look, I know we're almost out of Doctor Who stories that we can novelise, and uh, that's a shame, but stay tuned, folks, because 
we're going to be doing something new and exciting. We're going to do original stories coming out next year. Mm. And looking back, how obvious a thing is it to do? <laughs> oh, look, very, very, very obvious, Dave. But at, as I say at the time to me and maybe to other fans too who are listening, it seemed like heresy. It seemed bizarre. Yeah, and, and, and obviously in a time when there were sort of 10 to 12 target novelizations coming out a year, if not more, you didn't need new Doctor Who, but suddenly there was a vacuum and it just was a really obvious thing to do. Mm, that's right. Uh, the interesting thing was as well, although they invited initially experienced authors to come and write for them, Virgin had an open submission policy. They did indeed. And this is, <laughs> I mean, fans of New Who or who have come to the, the show even just in the past few years probably think this is crazy that this flagship television show, you know, its spin-off media could be just, you know, appealing. Hey, hey, can you write? Can you write for us? Please, anyone, please help us. You know, the thought of doing that today with Doctor Who is just, well, you just can't do that sort of thing, can you? No, no, but I can remember just within fandom, even in Melbourne and certainly Sydney, the number of just fans who thought, well, I churn out sort of three or four A4 pages of fan fiction in the local fanzine or the local newsletter, maybe I'll turn my hand submitting an idea to Virgin. And now and then they got published. Only one from Australia, unfortunately, but a lot of fans got their first break writing for these books. Oh, absolutely. I mean, to just maybe skip ahead a bit, Paul Cornell, who everyone knows, was started off as a fanfic writer. And of course, Kate Orman from Australia, who you're alluding to there. Absolutely. So I'm just going to read you the paragraph that was on the back of these new adventures, Rob, because this really sort of sets out the, the tone of it. So it says, uh, the new Doctor Who adventures, full length science fiction novels, stories too broad and too deep for the small screen, produced with the approval of BBC television, the new adventures take the TARDIS into previously unexplored realms of space and time. Yeah, and that length, I think, is an important thing to bring up. You know, target novels are very easy to read in an afternoon. You just zip through them. Um, even something like a 10-part story like The War Games, you can absolutely zip through that target novel in no time. But here, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of pages. These are adult-like novels. Yeah, un under 200 was very, very rare. And I think the longest was pushing towards 400. Mm, that's it. Which, when you know, as you said, when you've been growing up on 124-page target novels, and uh, in, in the case of Destiny of the Daleks, 124 pages with big type. Yeah, yeah I was going to mention the, uh, the font size as well, because some of these have fairly small font sizes for their, you know, 300, 400 pages too. Yeah, so they're the books, and look, they, they were fandom at the time. And this is a point I really can't stress enough. For us that were active in fandom during these years... This was new Doctor Who. This was as exciting as the new series is now. I can remember vividly the excitement when we'll get the newest list, either through sources or friends or through DWM or whatever, of the next maybe half a dozen books that were going to come out, their titles and their authors, and maybe a little sort of a sentence like, and this one would bring back this monster, or this one set in this time and location. And then a couple of months before publication, you'd get the cover. And it was just like now when you get a title and an author of a new series story, and you know you get those little uh, photos from the set or little little teasers about what might be in this one. You know, it's going to be a Mark Gator story about um, the 1950s or whatever. Mm. We were as excited about what was coming up in these books as we are out of the TV story now. This was new Who for us. 
oh, I've, I've heard that so many times and I can see that was the case. And, you know, I sometimes sit back and feel quite disappointed in myself that I wasn't there for it, you know, being such a big fan of Doctor Who in general. But it was that time in my life where I, I was 16. And, you know, even if Doctor Who had been on TV still, I probably would have stepped away from it. So it's not even so much, a, oh, I hated the, the NAs kind of thing. That's why I left. I think it was just my time to step away from Who and it's just unfortunate that it coincided with this very interesting period, which now, in retrospect, I wish I'd been around for. And that, that you know, very nicely introduces my relationship with these novels, Rob, because Doctor Who fans often talk about, you know, what's their era of the show, the one that was on the TV screen when they were in their sort of prime viewing time. And for me, that, that actually wasn't a TV era. For me, the Virgin books are my era of Doctor Who. And to give you some numbers on that, the first new adventure comes out the month I turn 11. Oh, yeah. The last one comes out two months before I turn 18. <sighs> Perfect. Yeah, so these just are... These were my teenage years. These were my prime, nerdy, geeky, teenage, imbibing science fiction, imbibing pop culture. And, and I'll, I'll mention this now as well. These were really a bit of a gateway drug for me into a lot of other written fiction. Uh, mm. So, for example, out of these, I got into the Timothy Zahn Star Wars novels and discovered the Star Wars Extended Universe. I got into the Trek original novels, the Red Dwarf original novels, and other books as well that weren't based on TV, because this was where I sort of started. Yeah, that that's interesting. So let's talk age for a minute. Do you think 11, though, is slightly too young for this range? And by what I mean is when you're 11, you can sometimes sort of reach up and grasp things that are a bit higher. I remember when I was 11, I was reading things like 1984, whereas the teacher was saying I should be reading Animal Farm, for example. And You know, some of us do sort of reach up. And so I can totally agree that at 11, you were really into this. But in general, is 11 a little too young for the range? I think that that is a very fair comment. I can certainly remember being 11 and reading Time Worm Genesis and understanding it. And I can still remember the visuals in my head when I was reading it. But were there concepts that went completely over my head or was, was there subtlety in writing or, or depth of language that didn't really or that I didn't really appreciate? Yeah, with, without doubt. And, and I'm sure that's actually the case through a lot of the range. There would be stuff that I, I got at the time but didn't really get properly. Yeah, but certainly, as you say, as your teens went on and heading up towards 18, oh, that's just key territory from what I can see and what I've heard of the range. Yeah, very, very much so. So, shall we get stuck into them? Please, tell me about it. So, the first four books, they made the interesting decision to link them uh, as one ongoing story, the Time Worm story. And it's interesting to tease these out because the four books do really, with hindsight, presage where the different directions the range could go in. So, you look at Time Worm Genesis by John Peel, who had made his name at this stage as the guy that Terry Nation trusted to novelise stuff like The Chase and The Dalek Master Plan, uh, would later do Power and Evil of the Daleks. And so it was, you know, the, 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 a very big name in who writing at the time. He writes a book that's set in ancient Mesopotamia, and it's got that bigger story and it's got those bigger spectacles, but it's also trying to be different and broad and adult with a lot of very sort of, in inverted commas, adulty stuff. So there's mm. nudity. There's a bit of reference to sex. Uh, there's a lot more drinking, for example. And, and there's a little bit of sweariness. It really sort of feels like a desperate attempt to be adult. It actually feels like a teenager 
trying to be adult and not knowing how to do it, but thinking, well, if I talk about sex and I swear a lot, I'll, uh, that's adult. Right. Now, of course, drinking, swearing, sex, it's all part of adult life. So is it more that that stuff is in Doctor Who and it makes you sort of recoil a bit like, ooh, that's not for Doctor Who? Or is it just not done well? It, it varies through the range. There's somewhere it's done very well. There's somewhere it just seems as though it's been pushed in, you know, like a square peg in a round hole mm. in, in Doctor Who. And, and Genesis is very much one of those. Uh, in contrast, the next book is Time Worm Exodus by Terence Dix, you know, who needs no explanation. Mm-hmm. And he tells basically a very traditional Doctor Who story, but one that could never, ever have been achieved on the show's budget. So he does a story that's all about uh, the Time Worm comes, gets trapped in Hitler's mind, and with that extra power, Hitler goes on to win the war. And it starts in 1950s Britain under Nazi occupation. And we then go back to 1933 and the first Munich Punch. We then go a bit later in the 30s and see uh, the Nazis coming to power. And we see the, the Nazis at their height, you know, with massive Nuremberg rallies. And the Doctor inveigles himself into being Hitler's confidant, which is a really strange and interesting thing. Wow. Um, you have nuclear weapons on ancient German castles and hordes of Nazi troops and time travel. And it's just this wonderful... It's really traditional Doctor Who, but it's even on a movie budget, you'd struggle to tell that story. So it's ideal for the books. This is already sounding much more interesting than the first book. It, it was. This was the one that really got people going, okay, this can be really cool. And a lot of people at the time were shocked because Terence Dix, unfairly, I think, had that reputation as the guy who wrote the he said, she said, just put the script on the page books. Mm. And suddenly he's writing this gripping epic. Yeah, wow. Uh, in contrast, however, Nigel Robinson writes Time Worm Apocalypse, which is just utterly forgettable. And, and probably, you know, 20 to 25% of these books are really just forgettable and quite flat. They don't really know what to do with the, the, the thing, and they sort of do a very basic Doctor Who story that just never really comes to life, and unfortunately, that's the case with this one. But it's followed up by Time Worm Revelation by Paul Cornell. Now, Rob, were you at least enough in fandom at the time to sort of get the reverberations that came from Paul Cornell's Revelation? Uh, no, not from that book specifically, but for, from him as a writer as the years went by, yes, in general. Yeah, so this really was a bit of a keystone moment in, in Doctor Who fandom, because Paul Cornell starts what we would now call the rad, or the radical um, path that the New Adventures could go down, which is very 90s. It's very influenced by those sort of... Uh, 90s sci-fi writers it's got some weird psychological stuff in there it starts to introduce more of that sort of cyberpunky stuff which will become big in the range but it's just written in this really weird almost terry pratchett-esque way or neil gaiman-esque way and neither of those actually is is right but it's somewhere in that genre of 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 sci-fi do you when i say that do you get what i'm saying I, I do. Does, does it feel very affected, though? Like he's, you know, trying a bit too hard? You know, sometimes when people try and write like other writers, it, it's like that? Looking back now, I think you probably can say that about Revelation. But it was pushing the door open to what something... that just, It was pushing the door open to something that would grow and develop. And, and even now, I'm just looking at the cover of Revelation. And it's the Doctor on the moon next to a church dancing with death. 
Well, say no more. <laughs> yeah. Now, that, that is just, you know, mind-blowing uh, as an image. So, yeah, four very different books to open it up. And, you know, really controversial at the time. Which one was your favourite? Which one was your least favourite? It, it, it was like having a new season of Doctor Who all over again and people going, oh, I thought Dragonfire was good. Well, I thought Delta and the Bannerman was good. No, no, I thought Genesis was good. I thought Exodus was good. Do you think it was uh, a mistake or a bad thing to launch with four stories? Because when we've just spoken about them here, and obviously they're, they're sitting over there here in, in my house, I could read them any time. I think, oh, well, it sounds like two of these are duff. Do I really want to read a four-parter where two of them are, are duff, even if two of them are great? It's not how I would have done it, and I'm really not sure about the rationalisation for doing it. Maybe it was as a bit of a hook, you know, if you try one at least, you know, you have to try the four. Don't know. It, it does age them, though, because as you say, you can't as easily go back and just read one. Um, I think Exodus does stand alone very well, but even then there's stuff that links it back to the others, so it's, it's not as ideal. Hmm. Okay, well, what did they do after that? Uh, after that, they did a, another linked set. This was three books, the Cat's Cradle Trilogy. Oh, God. Uh, this was actually, <laughs> I suspect, J&T's last real creative input into Doctor Who, because he'd long been pushing this idea, even back when he was producer, of why not have a series of linked stories where the Doctor has to get back to the TARDIS. Mm. And that's kind of the vibe through Cat's Cradle, although it's much, much looser. But this is a very, very adult, in inverted commas, set of books. Times Crucibles by Mike Platt, Warhead by Andrew Cartmel. They are both incredibly 90s books that are much, much more of that sort of um, uh, higher level of sci-fi writing, like pure sci-fi writing. This isn't fantasy anymore. It's real science. Mm-hmm. Warhead particularly is part of a trilogy that Andrew Cartmel does uh, Warhead, Warlock, and Warchild, which all deal with very 90s things. We'll, we'll talk a bit more about that later on. Witchmark by Andrew Hunt is a bit more traditional, but these ones didn't really sit well with me when I was... I mean, I was coming on about 12 when I read them, and they were just a little bit too far from Doctor Who at the time, a little bit too densely written, if you like, for me to get in at that age. And and they're probably ones that I really should make an effort to go back and read as an adult, I think. Are these possibly trying to, to do the whole 2000 AD thing? I often bring this up when we talk about Andrew Cartmel episodes on TV, like, oh, it's heading towards 2000 AD territory. It sounds being very sci-fi and dense and stuff that maybe it is like a sort of a 2000 AD kind of world. Yeah, I think it is. I think that's a very good analogy to them. Mm. And interesting, as it's a series, these three books, and yet, if you take one of them out, it's part of another trilogy by Cartmel, if I've got that right. Uh, yeah, that's right. So it's a very loose trilogy. Like, nobody ever said, and Andrew Cartmel over the next six years will do a trilogy. Right. But over the six years, he did three books that were all very clearly linked to each other, and it just mm-hmm. sort of developed naturally. A good one. Uh, fortunately, though, the next book to come out, and, and listen, we're not going to go through every book individually, I promise, but in these early stages, I think it's helpful to. But the next book that comes out is one that I absolutely adore and really just fell in love with at the time, and that's Nightshade by someone called Mark Gatiss. Yes. Now, this is a book that I had heard about, obviously, knowing Gatiss as a TV writer. Like, oh, he did, he did an NA, and it cost me a pretty penny, actually, to buy, Dave. Oh, okay. I didn't know that was one of the more expensive ones. Yeah, not not one of the really top shelf here. No, we want a hundred hundred dollars no. kind of ones, but yeah, it was more expensive than some of them have been. That's for sure. 
Um, and this is really evocative of the television series. It's set in a uh, isolated English village. Uh, it stars a character who, uh, back in the 1960s, was the star of a children's sci-fi show and is now retired and is suddenly finding that he's haunted by the creatures from that series. And there's all sorts of mysteries going on. There's an alien entity going on. And there's wonderful images in that that, that that are still really quite vivid to me. And particularly the cliffhangers in the chapters. Mark Gatiss really does write them as though it's an episode of Who and, and ends with it. And, and there's one that's still on my mind today because as this story develops, we, we realise that this alien entity uh, turns into something to then uh, attack and kill the, um, the, the, the humans, you know, a, a memory, a, a, a difficult memory from the past. And there's a moment where the Doctor's sort of looking around at the building, exploring, and then suddenly Susan's there and turns around and says, hello, grandfather. And in your mind, you can feel the, cl- the, the sting, like the cliffhanger sting <laughs> come in as you realise what's going on. It just, it's such a chilling moment. Nice, very, very nice. And I I do know some things about this story that it was later made into an interactive uh, story on the BBC website, which isn't around anymore. Uh, the story that is not the website, that of course is still there. <laughs> and uh, I think Big Finish have also turned this into an audio adventure too. I, I believe so. There are a number that they have done, yes. Mm, yeah. Uh, and the next one's a big one as well that we have to mention, which is Love and War by Paul Cornell. Because this writes out Ace. Gosh, he's really churning them out, isn't he? Yeah, well, I mean, he's, he's the first author to be asked back to do a second, and he comes back with a third not much longer after that. He, he contributes a lot to this range. Mm-hmm. But again, this idea that a companion would be written out, and then they introduce the new companion, Bernie Summerfield, in this book. And, and how do you do that in a book range? Uh, are you allowed to write out a companion? Well, of course you are. Ace gets retired. How do you introduce Bernice? Well, you get Alistair Pearson to do a whole lot of pictures of what she might look like, and the the writers have to get together and work out what sort of character she has, and the editor has to make sure that that's consistent. And a lot of fans, myself included, really fell in love with Benny Summerfield. She was a really good character. But again, I I need to emphasise a companion leaving, even via the book at this point, was as big a deal in fandom as if a companion was leaving on the series. Yeah, see that that's remarkable to me because I, I just wasn't involved here. But I, I can I can put myself in your shoes and sort of you know uh, feel what it must have been like. And and just on Benny Summerfield, I'll say that I was reading a, a new series adventure in the past year or two, it was a uh, Capaldi one, and Benny Summerfield was in it, and it just meant nothing to me. Mm. And 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 I knew in thinking that that around the world there would be other people saying, oh my God, she's back. This is amazing. Oh, look, she's interacting with Capaldi. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> and to me, it was like, I feel nothing. I've got nothing. You know, how bizarre is that? Yeah, that, that is totally understandable, but but really weird. But but yeah, it, it was in the, in the same way that there's a, if there's a really big episode of the series on now that everybody sort of rushes home to watch. I can remember when Love and War came out, we all knew some months in advance, Love and War's coming out, it's by Paul Cornell, and they're writing out Ace, and everybody wanted to get a copy of that book as quick as possible to read it and find out how Ace left. Yeah, and it's it's fair to say, even I know this, uh, she doesn't leave in the way they intended in the TV series. No, not at all, but you also are seeing very much at this stage that real development of the Seventh Doctor's persona. The, 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 the trend that you see on screen 
that really comes to its peak around about you know Curse of Fenric, Ghostlight of the Doctor being very manipulative. He's the person that does make those moral calls about, well, do you sacrifice one to save a thousand that we maybe hadn't seen before? That really does come to a head in Love and War. The whole theme of this book is the Doctor deciding, can you sacrifice one to save a million? Mm. And he does, and the one is Ace's boyfriend. Ooh. So I won't go any further than that. And look, you know, I don't think we really need to give a spoiler warning for something that came out last century. Uh, <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, so I won't, but, I, but I won't go any further than that for those who haven't read and want to read it. Or indeed, that, that is what I do know Big Finish has adapted. Uh, but but yeah, you can, you can sort of see this... this un, you can kind of imagine what it would be like to have a doctor that's willing to sacrifice people for, in inverted the commas, the greater good and, and manipulate things in order to get the outcome he wants. And... That's a very difficult place to take the character on screen, but it's easier to do in the book. Uh, the other thing that's worth noting at this point as well is one thing where the new adventures were free is that they didn't need to get kids in the same way the show did. You know, the television show is at its most successful when, okay, as older kids are sort of dropping off and outgrowing the show, the new younger kids are being drawn in. They, they turn on the TV, what's this Doctor Who? I like it. I'm going to be a fan for a few years. The books didn't really have that expectation. They weren't getting new fans. They were servicing existing fans and diehard fans, let's face it. So they were able to sort of almost cut off or cut a line through a generation and then just grow up with them. And so, you know, once you're free and going, well, I don't have to get 10-year-olds in anymore. We're just catering for the adults who grew up with this show. You can do stuff you can't do on television. Whether you should or not is debatable. But in the 90s, who nobody debated that because... We were all growing up, and nobody who's 20 wants to read a 10-year-old's novel. That's right, and I guess the show was dead on TV. The BBC had no intention of bringing it back, so I guess it's like, okay, well, we'll take this and make it our own. That's my impression of what was happening there, and, and just run with it. And, you know, we <laughs> new kids be damned. <laughs> this is our thing now. Yeah, and a really good example of that comes in the 10th the book, uh, Transit by Ben Aronovich, who wrote some you know, pretty good stories on TV, but was very well known for writing some great novelizations, particularly Remembrance of the Daleks, which is kind of seen now as being a bit of a template for how the new adventures could work. Uh, he, he does a very cyberpunk sort of novel, sort of all about this mass transit system in the, in the solar system in about 100 years' time. But it does include a very infamous moment where one of the characters has to take a uh, lolly to remove from their mouth the taste of a sexual act. Ooh. <laughs> now, Dave, that's rather adult. That is very adult. Um, mm. And, look, I would have been 12 when I read that, and I didn't really appreciate what it really meant. I knew that it was something a little bit naughty, mm. a little bit racy, but I didn't really appreciate what it actually... Uh, you know, I couldn't really appreciate it. But... Yeah, that was a very controversial, and there were some fans who were saying, "No, this is good. Doctor Who's more adult. We need to we need to be able to do this. We're we're, we're pushing the envelope." And there were others that were saying, "Well, hang on, it's still Doctor Who, guys. You know, mm. there are lines." And I think the whole range never really quite worked out where it sat with that. You know, if if I had been reading them, I think I would have been more traditional. Yeah, and, and this is the point where we do start talking about fandom in terms of the rads and the trads, the radicals versus the traditionalists. And mm. a lot of these books do start to fall neatly into 
is this a rad book or a trad book? Yeah, I mean, at 16, I'm, I'm just trying to think back to my 16-year-old self. I certainly would have read stuff that was radical and enjoyed stuff that was radical or a bit racy or whatever and thought, oh, it's very adult that I'm reading this. But my Doctor Who, I think I would have liked to have seen stay uh, pure, for want of a better word. Yeah, and, and I I probably was more of the trad, well, I was more of the trad sort of person, but... I certainly understood why they were doing this, and I had a lot of friends who were really excited by them doing this. Uh, the next book is The Highest Science by Gareth Roberts. Discovering Gareth Roberts, aren't we grateful for that? Oh, yeah. I mean, even you know, New Who fans will know who Gareth Roberts is. Yeah, this is one of my favourite books. It basically has a uh, device known as a Fortin Flicker that's going slightly askew on a planet, and it randomly is moving a whole bunch of uh, people and things to this planet, so you get a bunch of Shalonian troops who are uh, man-sized tortoise warriors, uh, and you also get some people who were just on the eight twelve to London, I think it was, and there's a carriage of them, <laughs> um, and and all these sort of things. You get a bunch of um, uh, basically drugged out hippies that think they're on the way to a concert, but are actually sent up on this planet. Um, into all of which you almost kind of get the crew from Blake 7, complete with their own version of the Aurat computer almost, who, who <laughs> arrive. And it was a really fun book with some really good ideas. And, and again, I just remember these covers, these wonderful painted covers these books had. I, I love them. And this one, a, a shot of the McCoy Doctor hiding behind a rock from a giant walking tortoise warrior. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who doesn't want to read that? Absolutely. So, is it a funny sort of book, like in a Douglas Adamsy kind of way? It's. I wouldn't say that it's funny, but it certainly has that Gareth Roberts wit about it. Okay. And, and that was something that I certainly appreciated, even at. I would have been just off thirteen when I read those. Um, the pit that comes afterwards is one of the more forgettable ones. Deceit is interesting. This is the thirteenth book. It's written by Peter Darvill Evans, who was the effectively the showrunner for the first half of the range. And he writes a book that reintroduces Ace, brings Abslam Dark from the DWM comics in, and it's the only one to even remotely mention the Daleks. I was going to say, because Absalom Dark is, is the Dalek killer, you know? But they're, what, they're not in it? No, so Virgin didn't have the rights to use the Daleks. So ah. you won't see them through any of this range. But what you get here is, is quite clever in a way. Peter Dive Levens sets the story on board a cruiser that is fighting in the Dalek Wars. So that's where Absalom Dark comes in. Uh, Ace, having abandoned the Doctor in the future, has joined up with the military, and she served a few years in the military, and she's now this battle heart and space veteran, what we used to call Turbo Ace. Um, <laughs> and so although the Daleks aren't actually there, this is sort of the closest you get to these people who have been fighting the Daleks, and they end up on another world completely uh, unrelated. But that, that, again, was a very interesting book, and the reintroduction of Ace was very interesting, because this is, this is an Ace who doesn't trust the Doctor. Right, well, given what you've already told me about what happened to uh, her boyfriend, yeah. I, can, I can assume why, yeah? Yeah, so she, she's always looking to go, right, what's the Doctor's scheme here? What's the Doctor hiding here? What's mm. he not telling us here? And when he tries to trick her, calling him out on that. And some of it, again, looking back, was a little bit uh, too full-on. But it was an interesting concept. Um, yeah, they get a string of some quite enjoyable novels. Lucifer Rising was a very hard one to get into when I was young, but a really well-written sci-fi book. 
White Darkness, Shadow Mind, uh, Birthright, we have to mention because this was the first, what we now call a Dr. Light story. Oh, okay. So what happens is Birthright is paired up with the next book, Iceberg. And there's there's something that happens at the start of um, Birthright, and it means that the Doctor and his companions are separated. So the companions go off and have an adventure in Birthright without the Doctor. And then in the next book, Iceberg, we see, well, the Doctor's off having his own adventure without his companions. Ah, uh, okay. That, that, that's a nice way to tie two stories together, maybe in a in a not as direct way as the earlier sort of series you were talking about, like the Cat's Cradle and the uh, the Time Worm ones. Yeah, it, it made them a bit of a pair, but again, it was just that ability to explore doing something different that the show hadn't done before. But the new series does quite a lot. Mm. And I'll say something about Birthright. I know the cover for this one. I thought that was a beautifully painted cover with the TARDIS sort of... It's, it's on a... Maybe it's like the Thames. Is it possibly the Thames? The water's gone out and it's sitting there in the mud? Uh, yes, I think that's right, yes. Yeah, now that's a really nice image. I love... You mentioned the painted images. I love painted images on novels when they just cop out and just do um, publicity photos. It's, it's nowhere near as good. And, of course, some of them weren't the best uh, paintings, but the ones that were good were incredibly evocative, and I, I really have a soft spot for those. Mm. Uh, we need to really mention, though, the book Iceberg. I just touched on it then. This was a big deal for a number of reasons. Firstly, as I said, it was a Doctor-only story. He gets a sort of a pseudo-companion Ruby for it, but it's the Doctor without his companions. It's also by David Banks, who played the Cyber Leader for the 80s Doctor Who stories. That's right. What a renaissance man. You know, he's, he's the Cyber Leader. He doubled for John Pertwee in the Ultimate Adventure stage play when Pertwee got sick. Um, he was his understudy, and here he is writing a novel. Good grief. Yeah, and it's very much tied in with the Cyberman non-fiction book that he'd released uh, probably about five years ago at this point. And, and he ties it in with that, and he you know, he uses the correct model of Cybermen, so we're no, now no longer bound by the Cybermen have to be whatever costume we have in the costume store. You can go, well, this should be the Cybermen as we saw them in the Trouton years, so they're going to be, and we'll have the Cyber Controller, because that's what we have there. So this is actually the start of a lot of old monsters coming back. And, it, you know, it really does start to prick the nostalgia bubble a bit and, and invoke that. Um, it was also quite controversial because this is the one that actually broke the camel's back at WH Allen in terms of some of the swearing, uh, particularly because about three pages in, it has one line that I can still remember off by heart. Not that it was a complicated line, of course, which was, F you, mate, just F you, you effing wanker. <laughs> really? Yeah, and there were got to remember there are a lot of bookstores out there that thought Doctor Who was a kids series. So with all the reprints of the targets in the kids series, the new adventures were sitting, and there were like you know adults that are thumbing through the first couple of pages of this, going, "This is in the kids series." Um, and I remember my year eight teacher having a look at that page and sort of wondering what I was reading. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so apparently that was, I didn't know this at the time, but that was the moment when there was the edict that came down saying, okay, we need to pull back on this. This isn't appropriate. Yeah, fair enough too. We need to mention the next five books, Rob, because they form a ongoing series. Now, they don't have it in the title, but they are an ongoing linked series and were uh, advertised as such, known as the Alternative Universe Cycle, which is a series of stories where something's going wrong with time. Now, my favourite of these is the first one, Blood Heat by Jim Mortimer. This brings back the Silurians, and the premise of this book 
is that somebody has gone back and changed time so that in the events of the Silurians, the Doctor is actually killed before he can uh, find a cure for the Silurians virus. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so the Silurians go on to basically conquer the Earth. And the Seventh Doctor's companions arrive to find Earth uh, 20 or so years later, taken over by the Silurians, it's their world, and, and they meet up with a resistance cell led by the Brigadier. Joe Grant is there, but you know, a completely shattered, you know, beaten down uh, woman. Lee Shaw is there working for the Brigadier. And you've got these resistance people desperately trying to fight back against the Silurians, you know, in, in a losing sort of war. So that's the setup for that, which is a really good one. That's a really good book. Um, Dimension Riders, The Left-Handed Hummingbird by Kate Orman. We'll, we'll touch on that in a moment. Conundrum by Steve Lyons, which reintroduces the land of fiction. And it's as though the land of fiction has been brought back from destruction by the Doctor and now has another go. Uh, and then No Future by Paul Cornell that finishes it. Now, Left-Handed Hummingbird is written by Kate Orman, of course, who is an Australian. Absolutely. And uh, I have promised on the show before to, to see if I can resurrect an old uh, interview I did with Kate uh, for the fanzine I worked for around this time. Uh, because when she wrote this, it was huge news amongst local fans that one of us, you know, one of one of our little gang that used to go along to parties at Sydney Union and someone who wrote for our fanzine and would toss off little stories to us had actually written a Doctor Who novel. Uh, at this stage, because where are we at now? This, this must be about 93 or even 94, perhaps? By this stage, I was starting to think, ah, oh, maybe these are a bit more serious than I originally thought back in 91. Yeah, and The Left Hand of Hummingbird was very much a rad sort of novel. Uh, it was very adult, it was very brutal, uh, very, very well written, and, and had a lot of Aztec mythology in there and all sorts of cool ideas. And it was Kate Orman really did make a splash, um, not just in Australia, but elsewhere, as being a, like, wow, where's this person been? We need more of this person. Because she was a very good writer. Whether you agreed with her stake, whether you agreed with her take on Doctor Who, though, which was, as I say, very brutalist, uh, it was controversial, but she was a good writer. I certainly remember in the uh, the fanfic she'd write for my fanzine and, and beyond, uh, the Doctor was always getting punched up or bloody yeah. or something was happening to him. And I believe that continued on into her new adventures work. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, No Future does have the conclusion to this five-story arc. We find out which returning villain it is that's been behind manipulating time to try and get the Doctor... Uh, it also brings back, I'm going to spoil this one a little bit, it brings back the Vardens, Ooh. which wasn't something any of us expected to happen. <laughs> that, that was a bit of a surprise. But it also has this whole idea of uh, somebody who is using the Doctor's style against him. So this person who has time travel ability has gone and found all of the Doctor's notes to himself in the future and a few other things and you know, remove them so the Doctor doesn't have them, but done his own things. And he's, he's changed timelines so that he has CDs rather than records available to him. Uh, it's set in the 70s in sort of punk Britain. Um, and there is, and I can't explain the reason to it without giving the, the plot away, but there is a moment there where the Brigadier has to uh, take out somebody who looks like Paul McCartney, which means that he actually uses the line, chap with wings there, five rounds rapid. That is a great line. That is fantastic. And I suspect the entire book was just written to get that line in somehow. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, so, look, I'm not going to mention every book sort of from now on, but the next one I did want to highlight was Legacy by Gary Russell, 
Mm-hmm. Gary Russell, of course, at the time, I think had just finished as the editor of DWM. And this was the third book in the Peladon cycle. So it was actually a sequel to Monster of Peladon. Oh, wow. Okay. Does it does it redeem Monster of Peladon? Yeah, I think it does a bit. It does. It, it's quite a good book. It, again, does stuff with the Ice Warriors that you couldn't do on television. Uh, Benny Summerfield, I, I didn't mention, actually was an archaeological professor or sort of wannabe archaeological professor whose special subject was the Ice Warriors. So she's sort of like fascinated. It, it would be like an Egyptologist now suddenly going back and meeting a pharaoh. Mm, yeah. Uh, so, you know, you get all of that sort of thing. Uh, interestingly, though, in Legacy, Gary Russell does predict Brexit. Because, as we know, Curse of Peladon was this whole analogy for why the UK should go into the common market, mm-hmm. or, or the Federation, as in Peladon's case. In this, the Doctor actually gets Peladon to leave the Federation. Really? Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, as much as Gary Russell hates it when I remind him of it on Twitter, he predicted Brexit 25 years early. Well done, Gary. (laughs) Uh, The next one I wanted to highlight is very important, and that's Blood Harvest by uh, by Terence Dix. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, this is a very good book in its own right, but it's very continuity heavy. It brings back... Well, it's basically a sequel in some ways to State of Decay um, and brings back the same villains there. Um, It also has some lovely little nostalgic bits and some lovely little in-jokes. The famous bit where the... uh, uh, Chicago policemen are talking after the TARDIS has dematerialised from uh, bootlegging era uh, Chicago. And um, the police officer says to his sergeant, Sergeant, just sort of vanished with this kind of wheezing, groaning sound. <laughs> and the sergeant responds, What sort of Egypt would come up with a description like that? <laughs> I like it. At this point, Virgin have sort of thought, Well, we're making so much money and selling so many books with all these Seventh Doctor ones. Why, why aren't we doing ones with other doctors? So they created the Missing Adventure range, which we'll talk about more in a moment. Okay. But what they decided to do to start it was they had two books, one in each range, that would link to each other. So the first book of the Missing Adventures was actually the sequel to this book in the New Adventures. Right, and that would be Goth Opera? That's right, Goth Opera. So the idea was you'd read Blood Harvest, it would then open up with a uh, sort of a, you know, this isn't resolved properly ending... And to find out how it was resolved, you'd then go and read Goth Opera, which had the Fifth Doctor in it. Yes, and is one I own because I went and bought all of the Fifth Doctor Missing Adventures. <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and and it is that sort of wonderful idea of you sort of see the baddie sort of running off on the TARDIS scanner and the companions are, Doctor, we've got to stop him. And the Doctor's like, no, no, I dealt with that, dot, dot, dot. Because, of course, he did it when he was Davo. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Uh, another one I want to highlight was a couple of months later, which was First Frontier. This is by David A. McKinty, and this is the first of David McKinty's Master Trilogy. Now, he has one in the New Adventures, one in the uh, Missing Adventures, and then one in the BBC Missing Adventures. First Frontier is the first one he brings it back. It's set in 1950s America during the whole, you know, UFO happenings and all the stuff that's going on, you know, Boswell's in the news, that sort of thing. And it brings basically back the master as he was at the end of survival and regenerates him, if you like, for a whole new era. Uh, And it's really good. Again, the master gets to be nasty in books in a way that he can't on television. And even something as simple as his tissue compression eliminator, you, you don't just get to sort of show him shooting this thing and people are shrunk. You get to describe what it's like to 
be killed as your body is being sort of shrunk unevenly down. It's a really vivid sort of description of what that's like. And that's, again, where these books can go beyond what the TV show can do. Mm, absolutely. Now, I, I know the cover for this one too. And it, is this what we would call Turbo Ace? She's wearing sort of like a spandex or something. Uh, yes, yes. I think it's a um, futuristic space uh, space um, trooper uniform, if you like, with the with the shades and the the hair tied back. Yeah, very shiny, very PVC, and and I know it from also this other book that Sophie Aldred wrote with Mike Tucker about the character of Ace. It's a big coffee table book from Virgin, and she did a special photo shoot where she actually got got into this sort of fetish gear, if I can put it that way, and <laughs> and did a photo shoot to sort of well, this is what Ace would look like wearing this gear. So that that I remember this sort of look from that book. Yeah, it is very memorable and it is very 90s. And that sort of segues me into a little sidetrack I want to go down, which is when we look back at these novels, Rob, they are so 1990s. There's a lot of cyberspace. There's a lot of big evil corporations about to take over the world. There's a lot of uh, environmental disaster type stuff. Not the sort of climate change stuff that we'll talk about now, but that idea that pollution is going to make it impossible to breathe the air and the water's going to be something you can't drink. And um, the internet was obviously starting to really take off at this point. So there's all that, you know, what could the internet become? And, you know, almost Skynet-like in a way. And it, it really does feel 90s. Well, I dare say the authors would have been watching The X-Files on TV at this stage and things yeah. like that as well. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's funny looking back now, there are references to... You know, CDs is like wow. They're they, they're really pushing the technological envelope here. They're using <laughs> they're using CDs and, and and DVD drives and you know stuff like that, um, which is very quaint now. But it, it's like any Doctor Who. You know, you look at the eighties Doctor Who and you go, gee, this was made in the eighties, and the same for the seventies, and the same for the nineties. And I reckon we'll look back at the Moffat era and go, wow, that is so the twenty tens. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean because around this time, say around say nineteen ninety three. You too would have been putting out the album Zuropa and, you know, talking about new media and things like this and the internet and so on. And, and when I look back on that era of U2's music or particularly see gigs from that time, it's like, oh, how quaint, <laughs> how, how lovely. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so. Uh, I want to mention here the novel Shakedown, again by Terence Dix. This was interesting because this was another one that linked in with a missing adventure, Lords of the Storm, again a Davison book. Uh, there were there were two halves of one story, but it was actually an adaptation of the VHS story that was made. It was a, a, a whole bunch of you know I want well, super fans is the wrong word, but but fans with a bit of um dosh and know how made a Doctor Who story. Well, sorry, not a Doctor Who story, an adventure in the Doctor Who universe called Shakedown with the Sontarans. And Terence Dix wrote the script for that, and then he turned it into a novel. Now, the one hour that's actually on video is only the middle third of the book. He puts a pro, uh, you know, first third and end third in there. But again, just this idea of these books actually starting to link in with other things that were going on in fandom, trying to keep the spirit of Doctor Who alive. Yeah. The more you talk about it, the more I want to go and just start grabbing these and reading them because I I've missed this era, Dave. I've, I've completely missed it, and I think I'd like it. There, there are stuff in there that you'd really like. Uh, I should give a shout out to the also people by ben aronovich which is probably one of the most out there radical novels it is very very sci-fi adult literary you know, you know book sci-fi um with some really big concepts in there 
Just War by Lance Parkin was just a really well-written story. But we need to mention Set Piece, because this is the book where Ace actually leaves for good. And it's also by Kate Orman. And, and again, this was a big deal. I can remember as they were sort of talking about, well, okay, Ace is going to reach her natural conclusion. She's going to be written out. Who's going to get that job? And then when Kate Orman was given that job, it wasn't just, wow, one of us has got to write for these novels. It's like, wow, one of us is writing out Ace. Mm. That's mind-blowing, you know, because when, when Ace was coming into the show... I was sitting in the theatre with Kate Orman watching this on VHS sent over from the UK just as a fan. And it's kind of mind-blowing to think that someone I was just sitting alongside at that time ended up doing this just a few years relatively later. Yeah, absolutely. And now the set in set piece is actually a reference to set the god of uh, death in, in, in Egypt, otherwise known as Sutek. Right. But of course, has the double meaning of it being a set piece, I imagine. Exactly. Um, now, Sutek doesn't appear in this, but there were links back to Pyramids of Mars as well. It was quite a clever novel. But again, we all needed to get this one to find out how Ace would leave. Mm. No, very exciting stuff. It was. Now, one that I think fans of uh, that knew who will recognise is a book called Human Nature. Yes. Written by Paul Cornell. A very popular book, even from people who don't uh, or haven't read the new adventures, but have obviously seen the TV episode and gone back to read the original novel. There's there's a lot of people who've read this. It's one of the more expensive books now, folks, because I think people snap this one up on eBay very quickly. Yeah, it's very much the same sort of story. It's about the Doctor has to hide from some aliens, so he turns himself into a human. His companion, Benny, has to essentially look after him as a human and he's played by these sort of memories and dreams of being the doctor and it really is a most gorgeous novel um much in the same way as the the tv version as i've said before um human nature remains my favorite of the new who stories yeah absolutely and of course the cover has a a school kid wailing away with a looks like a vicar's machine gun while the doctor holds the ammunition belt for him and you know that sort of um imagery that we saw on tv is is coming across here as well to me uh yeah absolutely uh, shortly afterwards in the book original sin we get two new companions introduced uh chris and roz who are adjudicators from the future so you remember the adjudicators in colony of space yes yeah so they're they're some of them they're these sort of international sort of investigators slash judges slash punishers if you like that go around and two of them end up in the TARDIS with the Doctor, so they're from the future. And how does that sit with the Doctor? Does he like that? or? It's a really weird dynamic. Some fans really love the way it worked. I never thought they quite sat well with the Doctor, certainly not in the way that Benice sat well with the Doctor. They always felt like just a little bit, like just half a step away from Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but others really liked them, and they certainly were very memorable characters. Because there would be crossover with Benny, because Benny hasn't left at this point, I imagine. No, she goes on for a little while. They do about ten books together, but the book where she leaves is the one I want to talk about next, which is the 50th book in the series. 50 books. Wow. Uh, They get to, and that's Happy Endings by Paul Cornell. Now, this is really done as a big celebration. It gets a little bit of a sort of a glossier cover. They bring back a whole lot of characters that actually come to Bernice's wedding. Uh, including a couple of old villains. Um, 
and, and it's you know it really is a bit of a celebration for fans who've stuck with this range for 50 books to, to really enjoy it. it's a very fun book unfortunately for the range though it comes out in may 1996 something else was happening in doctor who in may 1996 was that when the TV movie came out there? That's when the TV movie came out. <laughs> the problem being that when the BBC made, in conjunction with the Americans, this TV movie, they thought, well, there's a chance that Doctor Who's going to take off again. So what the BBC did was start to bring all of the various rights and licenses that they'd kind of given out for nothing over the decades because they didn't really care. They started to bring them all back within the BBC. Mm. So what happened was that Virgin had its license to make new Doctor Who books essentially not renewed. So they still had a, a contract. They were able to do 11 more books. But this is the point at which we actually sort of found out that the BBC have said, OK, look, OK, you've got a contract. You can do a few more. But come the end of this contract, sorry, no more books. We're going to do them ourselves. Mm. So the end is very much in, in, in sight then. And you do start to get this rebranding of the books because they did take them on um, to try and run them solo with Benny Summerfield for a while. And and they started to sort of change the layout, make them look less by doc, like Doctor Who books. And even towards the end, they dropped Doctor Who from the title and they were just the new adventures to try and ease readers into this idea of continuing without the Doctor. That becomes very niche then, Dave, because, I mean, we, we haven't really touched on the readership, but compared to the viewership of Doctor Who, the readership of the NAs would have had to have been small. And as time went on, maybe shrunk even more. Yeah, I mean, they, they sold relatively well, but they were getting smaller in their outlook. Uh, the Benny Summerfield New Adventures did continue for 23 books up until December 1999. So they had enough success that they could print them. Um, and, you know, you had some quite established writers of the range there. Uh, Terence Dix, Simon Boucher-Jones, Lawrence Miles did a couple, Dave Stone, um, Matthew Jones, for example, Paul Cornell did the first one. Uh, oh, no, no, it isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but, look, I never really got into them. Some fans really did, but at this stage, look, I'll talk about where I was with the books at this stage later. But, yeah, they, they did happen at the end, and they had some success. Mm. But, yeah, the to me, these last 11 books after Happy Ending do feel to me like, well, we knew the end was coming. Right, right. And it, it's almost like watching season 18 of Tom Baker's era where you kind of know through those stories that the end is coming. Yeah, I, I was going to say, is it like Legopolis where it has that funereal sort of air mm. to it? But but the whole season does, of course, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And not to sound like a broken record, but this is another one, folks, that will cost you a pretty penny when you mm. find it. My copy is beat up to hell, and it still cost me about 40 bucks, I think. Um, yeah, now there's a book in there that I, I'm going to sort of highlight, not for good reasons, although some people love it, and that's Return of the Living Dad by mm. Kate Orman again. I remember writing at the time when I did the review of this for um, our local fanzine that it was, quote, self-indulgent, nostalgic, in a circle rubbish. <laughs> don't hold back Dave well you know I was 16 at the time and at 16 you think that's edgy and cool and I wouldn't yeah. write that now in a review but I, I was 16 Yeah. but the point I was making is this was the point where the new adventure writers were becoming a bit of a clique so you know they were sort of giving each other ideas and uh, in some ways that's a good thing because it helps to sort of make it look like a consistent series but they are giving each other ideas they're sort of turning up in each other's novels. There's sort of a little in-jokies coming in there. Um, Particularly with Return of the Living Dad, there are a number of little characters in there that were all named after Sydney fans, for example. 
Right. Um, okay. and, I, and I can I can remember some fans were sort of a bit embarrassed by it. Others would sort of count how many lines their character got compared to other characters. Mm. Um, but but it, it was this sort of. Uh, and again, I don't know whether as an adult I would have taken the non-serious aspect of it and the indulgent aspect of it differently. But as a very serious teenager, this represented the, the, the wrong direction for the books to go in. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder how I'll take it when I read this, when I finally get around to it. Because, you know, clicks and things like that, you almost expect that to happen. This group of people who are trying to create this series you want it to be cohesive and you want them to be mm, talking mm, yeah but when it when it just tips over into that you know maybe more slightly self-indulgent and even if it's perceived that way perception is reality to people that sort of stuff can seem very wanky and i'm saying this because i've not read this book at all mm. but i can sort of picture how it could come across at this point in time because by now we must be well we are in 1996 aren't we we just mentioned yes, that with um, yep. happy endings uh yeah so that's five years of na's at that point yeah yeah i can see that yeah interestingly i mean we do get some very different books in here uh damaged goods was quite controversial that was by a guy i don't know if you've heard of him russell t davies i have heard of him dave because again broken record that was one of the more expensive ones for me to buy in the past 12 months yeah and i think that is one that is very much in demand because a lot of people want to go back and find out what is this 1996 story that russell t davies wrote about and it is very adult it is sexual mm-hmm. um there's a lot of sex in there there's some gay sex in there for example which you know you'd expect from Russell T Davies. Mm. Um, you know, I think he was on the cusp of making Queer as Folk at this point, for example. Uh, but that was quite controversial. Another one that was controversial is the book that was meant to come next, which was So Vile a Sin. Now, this was by Ben Aronovich, and unfortunately, he didn't get it completed on time. Now, he, he says, I have no reason to doubt his word, that his word processor failed and he lost a large portion of the book. And what happened was Kate Orman had to come along and finish it off a bit later, so it couldn't go out as scheduled. The problem was this was going to kill off one of the companions. Ah, so you have a situation where the companion drops out of the series without having been written out because the book where they're written out hasn't come out yet. Yeah, and you get to the next book where suddenly the (laughs) remaining companion is mourning the death of his friend. Which you've not seen. Which you've not seen. So it was very controversial at the time. I mean, you, you can imagine all the fans sort of going, oh, his word processor broke down. Yeah, of course it did. Yeah, of course, whatever. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, I have no idea what really happened and we probably never will. And it probably was a word processor fail. But, you know, but, fa- fans of today might say, oh, that's very timey-wimey. Something Stephen Moffaty is happening here. You know, his companions <laughs> just disappeared and we're mourning them, but we haven't seen what happened. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, so So Violacin came out right at the end of the range. It's considered book 56, but it actually came out after book 61 in, in publication terms. So right. that was quite controversial. Uh, I Need to Highlight Bad Therapy by Matthew Jones, which is a very sweet book. It's one of my favourites. I've mentioned it on the show before. In I was going to say, you've mentioned that book so many times, Dave. <laughs> I almost want to start my NA reading with that book. You've mentioned it so many times. Yeah, it, it's, it's, I can't claim that it's objectively the best written book or the most interesting book. And it, it, although it does bring back someone from the, the past of the show, it's not the most exciting person to bring back. But it's just, you know, sometimes when a book just really works for you and resonates for you and... I can remember at 16 that book really resonating for me. It was a really special one for me. Oh, good. But we're coming to the end of the range, so we'll highlight the last two. Book 60 was Lungbarrow, the final seventh Doctor book. 
and this was written by Mark Platt and basically is in print everything that we now think of as the Cartmore Master Plan. Yes, and for that reason, another very, very expensive book, folks. Very much so. So this is this is the last story. The Doctor has to go back to Gallifrey to deal with a problem at his old uh, family house, family in inverted commas. We learn about the history of Gallifrey. We learn about how Time Lords are created from family looms. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to meet Romana as president of Gallifrey. We get to meet Leela and K-9, who, of course, were left on Gallifrey back in Invasion of Time. Ace comes back. It's a really big wrap-up. It's a very, very thick book. It's a very, very dense book. It's one of those books that's got fascinating concepts in it, but it is very tough to read. Yeah, this book has a reputation as being like extremely legendary, but it seems to be extremely legendary amongst people who haven't read it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> people who have read it say it's it's not actually all that great you know the next book is actually a lot better yeah and so London Barrow ends with the Doctor being sent on this mission to return or to go and pick up the Master's remains from Scarrow and bring them back to Gallifrey and obviously leads into the telly movie mm-hmm. and then we have the final book in the range Dying Days by Lance Parkin which is the single Paul McGann novel and takes over from where the Tilly movie ends. And that is a really fun book. Bernice comes back for this one. The Brigadier comes back for this one. It's an Ice Warriors invasion of Earth. And it's just a really fun book that really captures far better than the Tilly movie, in my view, The Eighth Doctor. Yes. And Lance Parkin, as an author, I can say, pops up in the BBC books, The Eighth Doctor Adventures, several times, and in the in their version of The Missing Adventures, The uh, Past Doctor Adventures. He is a fantastic writer, and when we do that uh, particular episode, you'll probably hear me wax lyrical about Lance Parkin many times. Mm. So it's interesting that he sort of comes in here towards the end of the NAs, but he will go on into the BBC books uh, and do some remarkable novels. And, and again, I have a very fond memory of one Saturday morning lying in bed, reading The Dying Days, and it was the same morning that I think it was the Mars rover landed on Mars in the real world. And that was sort of on the radio in the background, whilst a probe from our, from the Doctor Who world was landing on Mars and being attacked by Ice Warriors. That's freaky. It was That's really so freaky. freaky. <laughs> so I want to now mention the missing adventures, because these are sometimes the forgotten cousins of the new adventures. And, and there they, aren't as many of those, are there? No, they only released 33, because they started about halfway through and they had to end at the same time. Mm. These, I think, suffered in some ways because they had a more difficult task. All the new adventures really had to do was be in tune with each other and be good stories. The missing adventures had to be in tune with each other. They had to be good stories. They had to be worthy of this new, broader, more deep, more adult book world that had been created that fans had expected. And whilst doing all of that, that to be reminiscent of and in the style of the era or the Doctor's era that they were trying to recreate. Yes. Yeah, and that that is a harder task. It was a much harder task, and a lot of them do struggle with that. Um, The first books have very mixed success. Goth Opera by Paul Cornell is a fifth Doctor story. That's actually really good. Uh, Controversially, the cover of that had Nyssa having been turned into a vampire with blood all over her blouse. Um, And that apparently, all those covers had to be pulped and all the blood taken off it because it couldn't be put into bookshops. (laughs) Uh, Evolution by John Peel is a fourth Doctor story that 
doesn't feel like a fourth Doctor story. On the other hand, but Venusian Lullaby by Paul Leonard is a story with the first Doctor, Ian and Barbara, that's set on ancient Venus. And that is a really, it really feels like a Hartnell story. But again, with a budget the Hartnell stories could just dream of. You know, yeah. the, these these weirdly alien Venusians and all their history and the pollution destroying the planet and really, really weird stuff. Uh, the Crystal Bucket, oh sorry, The Crystal Bucephalus by, <laughs> by Craig Hinton. Uh, State of Change by Christopher Bullis, which is a Sixth Doctor novel. A- again, they have their fans, neither worked for me. Then you hit book six, mm-hmm. Romance of Crime by Gareth Roberts, set in season 17. A book that people still talk about to this day. Yeah, and this is a book that just captures season 17, but really does it well. It's a great story. It brings the Ogrons back. It has a great new villain. It has some great cast members. Uh, and it just captures the Doctor and Romana and K-9 in that really fun season 17 way that, I mean, Gareth Roberts was just perfect to write. Yeah, no, that's that's one I I actually own. I haven't bought all of the MAs, and I don't think I'll try and get them all. I've got all of the Davo ones, uh, and I think I might try and grab some of the better Fourth Doctor ones as well, like this one. Yeah, so Gareth Roberts does four books for the uh, MA range. Uh, three of them, The Romance of Crime, uh, The Well-Mannered War, and The English Way of Death are all set in Season 17. He also does one called The Plotters, which is the first Doctor and Vicky during the reign of James I of England. That's right. Now, you spoke about this one on our Queer Who episode, I think. I did. I did. It's a really fun book. And again, it does stuff with the Hartnell era that whilst feeling always like the Hartnell era, the Hartnell era couldn't have quite got away with. So, you know, people are lusting after each other in a way you wouldn't have done in the, in the 1960s, for example. Mm. And James the First's uh, sexuality as well, I think. Uh, definitely, definitely. There's a, there's a part of that in there. Um, so, yeah, that's really interesting. The Sixth Doctor books are really interesting in this range. Uh, you get Time of Your Life and The Killing Ground, for example, which are set after Trial of a Time Lord. Oh, okay, so they've got Mel in them. Uh, no, they're set before he goes and gets Mel. Oh, oh God. Yeah, <laughs> this old yeah. Mel timeline is doing my head in, Dave. Uh, yeah, so... Time of Your Life actually basically starts with the Doctor having finished Trial of the Time Lord, sent Future Mel back to the future, and he sort of basically goes to hide on an asteroid because he wants to stop his future happening and stop himself becoming the Valiard. Um, but of course it doesn't work out that way. He gets involved in the plot. And, and this is quite infamous in some ways because it's all about television violence. And it includes basically a Mary Whitehouse character who uh, all sorts of vile things happen to. <laughs> then you get the, the story that follows on to that also by Steve Lyons, which is Killing Ground, which I've mentioned before as one of my favourites. That's a Cyberman book. And again, it's got the Cybermen at their most brutal and the most effective. And, and for those who haven't heard me discuss it before, famously it has that description of someone being cybernized from their point of view. Yeah, that 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 sounds pretty shocking. And and when you've spoken about it in the past, I thought, yeah, maybe I should grab that one too. That sounds like a special one because I love Cybermen stories. Yeah. Now, two books I want to pick out as really showing the good and the bad of the well, that's, that's not fair. But the the way you can and can't do these things is two Second Doctor books. One is Invasion of the Cat People by Gary Russell, and the other is uh, Twilight of the Gods by Christopher. Bulis? Mm. Yeah, Bulis, I'd say. Yeah, Christopher Bulis. Now, 
Invasion of the Cat People is The Doctor, Ben and Polly. It's by Gary Russell, and it is just a bonkers 1960s Trouton story. You know, these weird cat people come and try to take over the, the Earth. And it's just fun, and it's just so 1960s, and it really, really works. Twilight of the Gods is a sequel to The Web Planet. It's set on Vortus after the planet has recovered from the Animus, and it starts off very much as a traditional Trouton story. Then it just goes into this weird... 90s cyberpunk territory and i can remember reading that and just going this is not a trouton story it's not a bad story but it's not a trouton story yeah isn't that weird how they can just flip-flop from one to the other like that some people just get it others either don't get it or they're trying to do something that just doesn't work yeah and and some of them are perhaps trying to do a more new adventure style thing here and it it, it just doesn't work on the other hand, Gary Russell has said very openly, he said in one of the documentaries about these, he never really felt comfortable trying to do this modern, new adventure Doctor Who. So the moment they said we're doing missing stories from previous Doctors, he's like, right, good. I never have to write a modern Seventh, seventh Doctor story ever again. I'm going to write nice, fun 60s and 70s Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. Well, more power to him. Yeah. Um, I'll mention that The Ghosts of Space is here, which is an adaption of Barry Letts's BBC radio play, which is best not listened to, frankly. <laughs> uh, I quite enjoyed The Paradise of Death, which was novelised in its own right, but Ghost of End Space is terrible. Yeah. Uh, but that does lead us to the Pertwee books, which do actually work well in creating a whole extra level of continuity around the Pertwee era, because, of course, the Doctor was exiled to Earth in this time, so you do have this ability to sort of build up a world around him. So we actually are introduced to... Uh, Mike Yates when he's still a sergeant and he's in competition with Benton about who could be made up to captain. We see that go process go through. We get to see Liz Shaw's exit. Uh, we get references to the government departments behind unit that are doing stuff that we'd now think of as being a very tortured thing to do. The, the ones who go and clean up after alien invasions and then start to steal the tech for themselves and analyse that. That starts to be developed here. In, That's extremely Torchwood. It's very Torchwood. So you get that in novels like Eye of the Giant, and particularly The Scales of Injustice, another Gary Russell book, which is very good, and that's a sequel to both The Silurians and The Sea Devils. Actually, no, sorry, I'm wrong. It's a sequel to The Silurians, because it's Luke Shaw's last story, but it's a prequel to Warriors of the Deep. Hmm, okay. Uh, and that's very, very good. And there's a standalone book that comes out at about this time called Who Killed Kennedy, which is a brilliant book, it doesn't have the Doctor in it except for about the last quarter, but it's all about a journalist in London in the Doctor Who unit period who's basically investigating what's going on. Like, why was there this strange terrorist attack where people were killed? What was this strange coup where shop window dummies were involved? What was this plague that wiped out a whole lot of people in London? Um, what happened to the Mars probe? Why did this project called Inferno suddenly shut down for no good reason, wasting billions of dollars of taxpayers' money? And why is this brigadier guy at the scene every time these things happen? <laughs> You've waxed lyrical about that book. Gosh, it might be 12 months ago on the show. Uh, it does sound interesting to me, the premise of that one. It's a really good book. I, I thoroughly recommend that one to, to, to fans of the classic series particularly because the references are really, really cleverly done. Yeah. The problem the Missing Adventures range does have, though, is it does start to become a bit obsessed with being prequels or sequels to things. So you get a sequel to The Talons of Wen Chiang, set in the middle of the Kita Time series. Uh, you get a Santaran story, which is pretty good, um, but was it necessary? 
you know, these sort of things start start to happen. As again, who was asking for a sequel to the Web Planet, for example? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, the Web Planet, it's quirky and it has a, its fans, but does it need a sequel? Yeah, yeah. I get you. So that's that's you know a bit of a problem for them. Uh, I'll mention Cold Fusion, which is a multi Doctor story, which is a ostensibly a fifth Doctor story, but in which the seventh Doctor appears, and you get that really interesting contrast of the fifth Doctor, this you know this nice likable very moral doctor meets the manipulative dark seventh doctor and says oh my god i don't think i like this mm. yeah fair enough Dave. fair enough <laughs> <laughs> and can i just say ding another one of the very expensive novels cold uh, fusion probably the most expensive of the uh the missing adventures i reckon yeah uh, there, i believe there were some printing issues with that one and and you do see the later ones in both ranges also become more expensive because obviously the printers have to shut down at a certain point they couldn't do multiple prints of these because the license ran out yeah so if the, you're a nozzy out there expect to pay 75 to 100 dollars or more for that one uh yes easily very very easily uh, and i'll mention the last two books in this range the dark path is the second of david a mcginty's master trilogy i mentioned the first frontier being the first book this is in the doctor's timeline his first encounter with the master uh, it's a second Doctor and Jamie book, or Jamie and Victoria, I should say. And this is the one where he meets the Master as just another guy exploring the universe. And you find out what happens for him to become the Master as we know him in the Pertwee era. Yeah, so certainly doesn't jive with continuity as we know it in the TV series now. No. But, but is a story that uh, people just go out of their way to, to snap up again, one of the more expensive books and one of the more popular books. And of course, who would be selected to finish this range but Gareth Roberts uh, with a book, The Well-Mannered War. It's another of his season 17 ones um, and very much influenced by what was going on at the time as well. Um, the upcoming British election was kind of uh, weaved into that in, in, in sort of subtle analogous ways. But even uh, Babylon 5, which was huge among fans at the time, gets woven in in a couple of ways to the point that if you look at the cover of this book, the two human officers are basically wearing season four Babylon 5 uniforms. <laughs> nice. I like that. So, Rob, they're the two ranges that we've gone through. Um, a couple of final thoughts to finish up, but I thought yeah. I might be indulgent to just give you my, uh, my top 10 and 5 list for each range. Oh, not just me, Dave. I think people out there listening would love to hear, you know, maybe what the, the better stories are in your opinion. Now, this is like any top 10 or top 5. Different fans will have very different views and almost completely different lists. But for me, the new adventures, my top 10, I'm going to go number 10, Blood Harvest. It's just a really fun Terence Dix novel. Number nine, Iceberg. It's David Banks, it's the Doctor, and it's the Cyberman, and it's just fun. Number eight, The Dying Days, the one-eighth Doctor book. It's, again, really, really fun. The Brigadier is great, and it's a great Paul McGann book. First Frontier by David A. McGinty. I love the whole Roswell sort of 50s setting. I love The Return of the Master, really good. Human Nature by Paul Cornell. It comes in at number six for me. Brilliant, fun, heartwarming uh, Bad Therapy is at number five. I've spoken about why that's a personal favourite of mine. And then in the top four, I've got Nightshade by Mark Gatiss, mm -hmm. a fun traditional book. Blood Heat, a very dark, very Seventh Doctor book. And then Exodus by Terence Dixon, number two. And Gareth Roberts' Highest Science is at number one. For me, that is the peak of the new adventures. It's fun. It's a bit more adult. It's very wide, ranging in what it covers. It captures the Seventh Doctor really well. It's got giant walking tortoise warriors. Uh, mm -hmm. If you're looking for somewhere to jump in, guys, 
Higher science, I think, is actually a pretty good place to do it. Interesting. And as for the missing adventures, I'll do a top five because they only had half as many books. Uh, It starts at number five with The Plotters, a first Dr. Gareth Roberts story. The Dark Path, I just mentioned, is number four, a really good Troughton book, a really good master story. Number three is the Colin Baker story, The Killing Ground, which, again, I've mentioned. Uh, It's the Cyberman. It takes them to a new level. It's a great Colin story. Number two is The Scales of Injustice by Gary Russell that I have got autographed by the man when he came out to Melbourne a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And number one, Gareth Roberts gets it again with The Romance of Crime. And we talked about what a wonderful novel that was. And again, if you're looking for somewhere to jump into The Missing Adventures, I reckon The Romance of Crime is the one to try. Good one. Do you have any anecdotes from when you met Gary? Did you make a comment like it was one of your favourite MAs or anything like that? Uh, I did, actually. I sort of, you know, got very fanish and I said something along the lines of, you know, when I was a teenager, your books were really important to me and I really loved them and this was a favourite of mine. And, you know, got a really nice back to sort of look of, like, wow, that's really, you know, really nice of you to say. So that, that was a very nice moment. Oh, good one. Good one. So we've covered the new adventures. As I say, they're, they're my era... I have very fond memories of growing up with them. Uh, there are some that I go back and reread fairly often. I think I've read you know, Exodus five or six times over the years. Others I've read two or three times. Some I haven't gone back to and probably should. And, and the same for The Missing Adventures. But look, that's them. And uh, I know we've had a lot of tweets from people who've said that they've really enjoyed them and they've been really interesting to read. But uh, I hope people do go out and explore these as their own era of the series. Yeah, I think, you know, we've touched on how maybe some things have been uh, retconned, perhaps, or some things just haven't happened at all in the continuity of the show as it is now. But it does sort of stand as its own its own little ear, and you can push past that and just uh, enjoy it for what it is, as far as I'm aware. Albeit with the understanding that, did we say earlier, 25% of them maybe aren't so good? Yeah, look, I mean, like anything, they're, they're the, the absolute classics. I mean, anything I've put in my top ten I think is brilliant, and there's another five or six that could just as easily be in that top ten. So you're talking sort of, you know, a quarter really, really good, then probably another half are enjoyable, and then there's maybe a quarter that I would rate as pretty forgettable. But, like anything, there are some that I would have in my bottom ten that others would have in their top ten. Yeah, and that's the beauty of fandom, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very, very much so, but... Next time we convene to do this, Rob, you're going to talk to me about the BBC books. And, yeah, interestingly enough, I sort of drifted out early on in those because, as I said, I was now I was now turning 18 and I wasn't that interested in Doctor Who anymore. The series had kind of died. Realistically, probably one of the big things was I turned 18 and rather than being a high school kid catching the train to school, I became a 18-year-old going to university and driving. So I lost sort of an hour at the start and end of each day to read books. Whereas for me, Dave, I did uni 93, 94, 95. So by 96, I was going to work on a train and I could read novels again. And I'd fallen in love with the Eighth Doctor on television, even though I didn't think much of his actual adventure. Uh, The character I thought was amazing. And then there were Eighth Doctor books. And I was going to sci-fi bookstores and just my mind was blown. You know, it's the year of reading Babylon 5 books as well. Yeah. And I was just getting back into reading science fiction and, and not being as uh, po-faced about reading fiction based on TV shows anymore and just enjoying reading great stories for what they were. And yeah, I the EDAs were it for me. And I think 
you know, I'd also look back at the NAs and think, oh, do I want to really collect all of those now? In hindsight, I should have. It would have been a lot cheaper. But, you know, in my first year of work, I was like, oh, it's too expensive. I'll just start with these this new series and read about a doctor I want to read about and only have to spend whatever it was, $13 a month, $14 a month to get the stories. But we'll continue that when we reconvene next time. Yes, to be continued whenever that might be. So the final thing we'll just say is for those who want to read these books, they are available in various different websites as PDFs, but you can certainly purchase them all. Um, some of them are more expensive than others. Some they can get for $5, $10. Some of them, as you said, you're paying upwards of $100, but they are all available on you know eBay, um, Amazon secondhand books, just around different fan things. And if you really want, sometimes, if you want to invest, you can actually buy a full series as a job lot. You'll pay a lot for it in one hit, but it's actually works out to be pretty good value. Yeah, my experience in collecting these over the past year, I mean, I, I bought a lot of them from uh, Brendan Jones from Fly Through Entirety. Uh, but the ones I didn't, I was finding I was paying maybe... 8 to 12 bucks for reasonably okay copies uh, for most of them. You know, in some cases, I was paying 15 bucks and getting, like, actual new copies that mm. have been sitting not on someone's shelf, but maybe in a box somewhere at, a you know, an old sci-fi store or something and been rediscovered. Uh, but then, yeah, I would then go and pay $50 for an extremely beat-up copy of Happy Endings or I think 75 for my copy of Cold Fusion, 100 for Lung Barrow. Yeah. Um, some of them just blow out terribly. So vile a sin, I wasn't expecting to pay a lot for, but I guess because it is at the end of the run when the print run was so low, uh, it's a fairly rare book, so I paid a lot for that too. But, yeah, a lot of them you can pick up pretty cheap. You're quite right. So, look, they're my thoughts on what is, as I've said, my era of the show. I hope that we've uh, sparked some memories from people that were reading them at the time. I read them later and maybe sparked some interest for those who, who didn't. And if a few people hear this podcast and go and read a couple of these books, I'll be very happy. Yeah, job done, Dave. All right, Rob. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with our regular Doctor Who show episode where we're looking at season five, the monster season. Oh, yeah. And sometime after that, we'll, as I said, reconvene to talk about the BBC books. We certainly will. I've really enjoyed this, Dave. Thanks for doing it. No, I've really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for indulging me. <laughs> no problem. All right, we'll speak again soon. Bye now. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.